So I hope your uh, practice of shooting hoops this morning is going all right. <laughs> Maybe making a few, not getting too tight when the ball doesn't go into the basket. So that was one of the things I, I realized playing when I got out there. And I, mind you, I do not play a lot of basketball, so there wasn't a lot of um, swishes happening. But I noticed when my body got tight, it was so much harder to make the shot. And it fits so well for what we're doing here. Just noticing, really, just to have the ease, the ease that, that we need around the noticing. It's so, in some ways, effortless. And when there's more ease, it's, it's easier to kind of allow ourselves to be present. And when there's kind of a, a contraction in the mind and body, all we need to do is just to notice that, right? So there can actually be a kind of ease around when things aren't going well, whatever that means. Because it's just this simple act of, of, uh, of noticing. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at the context within which uh, the Buddha was sharing uh, these teachings of emptiness and also tied in with this simple practice we're doing of seeing these strands, the threads of the fabric, the tapestry of experience. I think it's important to understand the context within which the Buddha was, was teaching because it will what I hope will come out of it is I think you'll you'll see the relevance that this has for our lives and the world that we live in. And this is important so that this teaching on emptiness, these teachings on emptiness, are something that are practical for how you're living and how you interact with that world out there. Another way of of remembering this is remembering how practical the Buddha was that this path is very simply about suffering and the end of suffering. That's the domain we're curious about. So one of, we, one of the things that we can see the Buddha, you could say of early Buddhism that we find in the Pali Nikayas, is doing time and time again in a lot of these suttas, is he's offering a critique, a kind of critique of kind of the societal dynamics that were going on around him. And you find this happen quite often. And in particular, he was offering a critique around what's called the Brahminical tradition, the tradition that was being upheld by the Brahmins around him. And as a result of this, what you find is you find a number of conversations that he's having with some Brahmin or some group of Brahmins. And at times what you'll find out is, is they'll come and visit him, some group of Brahmins or one Brahmin, and ask him what he thinks about this Brahminical societal system that's divided, kind of divided people into basically at that time four classes of people and ranking them of being either superior or inferior. And it was a system mostly based on the family you were born into. And basically what he was trying to, to argue is just because someone was born into a certain family doesn't make them better than others. So for example, one simple quote that you can find in your study guide, and this is on page 13, it's quote 42. So page 13, quote 42 there. 
Not by birth is one an outcast. Not by birth is one a Brahmin. By deed one becomes an outcast. By deed one becomes a Brahmin. So it's undermining, this kind of understanding is undermining this notion that someone is better by birth and rather situating this whole unfolding of a spiritual path around the ethical, around ethical action actually. And I, I wanna point out the, the monastic community of the Buddha really undermined this as well. If you can imagine somebody gets um, ordained who's a Brahmin if there's someone who got ordained before him, who was from a lower caste, you could say as kind of a pre-caste society though, they would have to bow down to that person because it was all, always done on uh, seniority in terms of when somebody become a, became a monk. So it was undermining kind of a societal um, dynamic that was going on around the, the monastic community. And it was not only speaking out against these societal dynamics of, of saying who was better than and less than, but also speaking out against the kind of societal dynamics that came out of this understanding. So again, if you turn your page on page 14, the top of page 14, this, this quote doesn't have a number, so it's the one above quote 44. This is a very interesting critique he gives here. I do not say, Brahmin, that all are to be served, nor do I say that none are to be served. For if, when serving someone, one becomes worse and not better because of that service, then I say that they should not be served. And if, when serving someone, one becomes better and not worse because of that service, then I say that they should be served. And then actually this comes before in that same discourse, uh, quote number 44, which I think is, is interesting in the same vein. Well, Brahman, has all the world authorized the Brahmins to prescribe a particular way of service? No, Master Gotama. Suppose, Brahman, they were to force a cut of meat upon a poor, penniless, destitute person and tell them, good person, you must eat this meat and pay for it. So too, without the consent of those others, you could say, the Brahmins nevertheless prescribe a particular way of service. This I find quite striking. He's speaking out, he's critiquing this societal dynamic, a dynamic that we still see, right? Of, of, of Wouldn't it be interesting to be in a society that that's what's determined of one can serve another as long as they're better, they're, they become better from it, not if they become worse from it. Speaking out actually against an oppressive system, oppressive economic system. And to do something to someone without their consent, as if you're, you're offering them a piece of food and then telling them they have to pay for it. And he sees that this is what comes out of when we, when we have a system of, of, of a society that says this person is better than and this person is less than. And 
hopefully you're hearing within this context, this critique that the Buddha is giving, is he's pointing out societal dynamics that come from a particular dynamic of the mind. Conceit. Which is the sense of, uh, when, when there's a sense of, I am better than, or I am less than, or even I am equal to. Another. As Susie and Guy mentioned, it's these tides of conceiving, these tides of creating a self in this way. It doesn't happen only in the mind, it then it spills out from there. This is the creation of a self. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. I'm better than, I am less than. It's actually making something more real and solid than it actually is. Do you see how practical the teachings of emptiness can become? Because it's undermining this dynamic. I feel like the teachings that the Buddha gave were for this purpose. To undermine societal dynamics. Because this teaching of emptiness is intimately intertwined with the dynamic of suffering that arises around creating a self and then how it, 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 it goes out from there. So I want to point out this path that you're doing right here at IMS, right on this retreat, it's not some path that's just about my own little life and my own little suffering. It has consequences and hopefully an impact that, that spreads out much farther than that. That this teaching of emptiness is about that. And in light of this, I think it's important to see that the dynamics that happen in our society are happening in your mind on this retreat. Krishna Birdie puts it well. He says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may, may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is. Because your mind is part of society, it is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, you're going to the temple, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do and what you think. Society is made up of all this. It is the replica of what is going on in your mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from culture, from your religion, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All this is society, and you are part of it. There is no you separate from society. Your mind is society. So all those messed up, crazy thoughts and tendencies that can arise, they're not about you. 
It's just the conditioning of society playing out. You could say it's this collective greed, collective hatred and collective delusion. It's just found a form to play out in. And what I find so wonderful about just this notion to remember this is I don't have to take it all so personally. This is just an unfolding that's been inherited. Why would I take something like that personally? I need to be responsible for it and responsive to what arises. So essential. But not personal. And hopefully you can hear just in this notion how there is a quality of an understanding of emptiness. This is, this, all this whole drama that happens in the mind, it's empty of me. It's just constructed, it's just conditioned by these other conditions that are at play. <clears throat> so this is what I really want to explore with you this morning is talking about how the unfolding and structure of experience can give rise to this habitual tendency of our society, to these tides of conce conceiving that happen also on a societal level. And in particular, this, these tides of better than, or less than, or even equal to. And that's why I wanted to start this morning around just getting a feeling sense of how experience is structured. I gave you one way. You can divide up the pie however you want, but those six different pieces. Oh, it's mind and mind objects. Oh, it's sensations. Oh, sound, hearing, the activity of hearing, the activity of smelling, the activity of, of taste, seeing. This is the structure. These are the threads that make up the tapestry of experience. Because when I can start to see the, the, the threads, I can start to see the unfolding, the blossoming of these other habitual tendencies. And in order to get a, a deeper sense of this, I, I'd like to use this uh, quote again on page 14. It's the quote four, 45, quote number 45. And really all we're gonna do for the most of the rest of the time is just unpack this paragraph to really go slowly with it so we understand it and then to bring it into your practice. And I wanna point out, I'm not asking you to do anything different in your practice this morning. It's just to notice in a very simple way, to notice again and again, oh, there's a sensation, oh, there's a thought, there's an emotion. Just the noticing to keep it very simple with a quality of continuity. This is what's so important. And this is a, a paragraph about sense restraint or guarding the senses. And this, you could say, sometimes it's called a pericope, which is a kind of phrase that you find over and over again in the Pali Nikayas. And it's, it's a part of a teaching called the gradual training. And the gradual training is a, is a, a teaching of the Buddha that you find repeated over uh, through many, many different suttas. We can find this kind of, this teaching on uh, sense restraint and guarding the senses. Okay, so let's go through this. I'll read it and then we'll, we'll break it down some. And how does a practitioner guard 
the doors of their senses. Another word for that would be restraining the senses. On seeing a form with the eye, they do not grasp at any theme or details by which, if they were to dwell without restraint over the faculty of the eye, evil unskillful qualities such as greed or distress might assail them. And then it goes on to the other six sense bases that we went over this morning on hearing a sound with the ear, or on smelling an odor with the nose, etc., or on cognizing an idea with the intellect. They do not grasp at any theme or details by which, if they were to dwell without restraint over the faculty of the intellect or, or the faculty of hearing, that evil, unskillful qualities such as greed or distress might assail them. Endowed with this noble restraint over the sense faculties, they were in they are inwardly sensitive to the pleasure of being blameless, to the pleasure of integrity of how we move in the world. This this is how a practitioner guards the doors of their senses. Okay, so let's break this down. on seeing the form with the eye, or on hearing a sound with the ear, or on smelling an odor with the nose. This is called, you could say this is the short form of contact. This is a moment of experience. So you have a sense organ like the eye, you have a, 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 a visual object, and then actually the other thing that he's not mentioning here, consciousness. Those three come together and you have a moment of experience. Just these three things. So he, he's mentioning that. Here we have a moment of experience on seeing an, uh, a form with the eye, etc., etc., with these other six areas that we went over. And then and, and what I want to point out about this idea of sense restraint, which is really important to see, that it's not about not trying to see things or not trying to hear things. So, so often when people hear this, this idea of guarding the senses, they think, oh, I should not be looking around. I should try not to hear things or try not to smell things. But I want to point out the Buddha is not saying that. So for example, in, in one discourse, um, he's having this conversation with another young Bra Brahmin, Uttara. And Uttara learned from his teacher, well, the way to get to this is you just cover your eyes and you cover your ears. And the Buddha said, well, if that was the case, you just need to be blind and then you'll be free. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's not going to lead to your freedom if you just walk around with covering your eyes and covering your ears. That's not guarding the sense doors. There's no freedom with that. So I want to point out, he's not talking about that. And I want to point out something about retreat life. It is helpful, especially like looking around, it is really helpful not to be looking around at each other, just so we can come more inward. So there is this instruction that we give you not to be like making eye contact and things like that, so that we can go inward. So it is really helpful, especially around the eyes, not to be like looking around so much. But it's not, it's, it's not this teaching on sensor straight, so I want to distinguish these. We're not trying to shut the eyes down. 
It just can be helpful not to have, as, for example, as much eye contact or something like that. But there's nothing bad about it or wrong with it. Okay, so we got through the first few words here. <laughs> On seeing a form with the eye. And then, and then we find the skill, the skill of um, sense restraint is they do not, the practitioner does not grasp at any theme or details. So we, what we have to get clear about are these words, theme, theme or details. So the Pali word for theme is nimitta. So some of you might know this word because it's used in uh, some uh, practices of concentration where one looks at a nimitta, sometimes like a kasina, which is this disc that one looks at. But this word is used uh, differently in different contexts. This is always the trick here. Nimitta also means that it's it's uh, a sign to kind of describe something. It's, you could say it's a, it's connected with perception. It's like a naming of of this. For example, in one discourse, the Buddha is talking to this householder, Potalia, and Potalia is walking up towards him. And what the Buddha says is, is, is he says, he sees Potalia and he sees that he has the nimitta of a householder. He's wearing the clothes. He looks like a householder because of the, 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 the clothes he's wearing. So he kind of looks like a householder. He has those signs and themes and details of what a householder looks like. That's all nimitta means. Or in another discourse, a woman sees a monastic and she recognizes that this monastic is a son from a certain family. And she says to him, oh, you had the nimitta. You had these hands and feet and facial features that reminded me of this family. You had the signs, the details of a visual thing that, that, that made me remember, oh, you're from, it looks like you're from this family. So it's just these signs or markings, these perceptions that are there. So that's, uh, nimitta is the word for um, this uh, theme. Then details is, uh, it's, it's, it's a long poly word, anu vian janaso, which the, the translation that I appreciate, actually I get this from Bhikkhu Sujatu, which I find really helpful, is it's just a synonym for, for nimitta. So it just means that, that one does not grasp at any theme or any other theme. So it's just repeating it. One does not grasp at the signs or the perceptions that come with this initial contact or the other ones that come. So it's just repeating this. So it could also say that one does not grasp at any theme or any other themes is a, is a simple way of, of understanding it. And then this really important phrase, one does not grasp at these. So what's important about this is that the practice is not trying to stop these themes or details from arising. This is very important in your practice. We're not trying to stop the mind. We're trying to see it. Have you tried to stop your mind? How successful have you? If, if you were successful at that, why would you come on a retreat like this? <laughs> Obviously, you've noticed that is not the way. We just need to see it and not to get hooked by it. So it's, not, it's, it's to see clearly that these are just themes and details and not getting hooked by that. That's the practice. Sensations arise, noticing sensations. There might be some kind of theme or detail. Oh, that's my foot. Oh, interesting. But I'm not hooked by that. It's just a, it's just a sensation. 
And then he, he goes on. Well, if one were to dwell without restraint over the, eye, the, the faculty of the eye, which now means, right, one has grasped onto, has been hooked by one of these themes or details. That unskillful qualities of mind assail one when one gets lost in these. Again, remember, restraint doesn't mean covering the eyes so I'm blind, but not, not getting hooked and not grasping onto these. So let's give an example of, of this, of how this plays out in the mind, how that there's the arising of contact, and then there's these themes or details, and how it can lead to a kind of suffering. So for example, you're doing walking meditation. I'm doing walking meditation, going back and forth. And, and as I'm doing walking meditation, a body passes me. Another body passes by. And there's a moment of, of, of contact. It's the, the eye sense gate. There's a, the, an, an, an eye organ, there's an object, and there's consciousness. Seeing happens. And then from seeing, right, from seeing arises details and themes. From seeing arises nimitta or certain kinds of nimittas. And often what I notice, which is just so interesting, is so often what can quickly arise is the, the concept man, woman. There it is. Just by seeing a body moving or seeing the shape and its features. Nothing inherently wrong with those details and themes, like the detail and theme of man or woman. They can be used actually quite skillfully. But in terms of walking next to a person or walking next to a person who I've never met, and I have no idea how they identify themselves. This is an arising that's happening in this mind. And they might be a person who doesn't identify with either of those categories. And when I say this mind, remember, I'm saying from this society too. Your mind is society. And what might happen, right, if I were to grasp at or get entangled with that concept, man, woman, I might do something quite harmful. I might be like just one of those Brahmins who utilize a kind of social system that not everyone has consented to. Just around those concepts that just pop up, right? That's the conditioning of the society. It's such a, a binary gender world that's conditioned this mind. And then suffering arises when I assume that those themes or details are somehow true, that I don't see that they're conventional. And it happens so quickly. We do this around bodies, and even on a more complex level, it's not only that, sometimes we then create a personality around them, and we find them as being agreeable or disagreeable, or liking them or not like, liking them. And if I grasp onto those and get entangled in them, it could be quite harmful. I might be just like one of those Brahmins, using a kind of societal system that not everyone has consented to. The mind is society. There can be all kinds of biases that are intermixed with these themes and details. 
that have been constructed around this thing called gender on a societal level. Right, in 2015, female full-time workers made only 80 cents for every dollar earned by men. A gender wage gap of 20%, this is 2015. Women on average earn less than men in virtually every single occupation for which there is sufficient earnings data for both men and women to calculate an earnings ratio. As the Buddha said, if one person serves another person ends up being better off, oh, so be it. Yet if one person serves another person and they end up worse off, oh, that's not so good. This is really what the Buddha was talking about. It was a critique. Have women agreed to this deal? This dynamic arises from the mind. Your mind is society. And to somehow think I was raised in this society and not have a mind by, uh, that's, uh, that's affected by this? Now that's foolish. How could that even be? I mean, what a crazy thought that this, that this mind has been conditioned by the society and is somehow free of that. And just to be inclusive, I always like to remind you of this great quote from Bell Hooks. To remember, patriarchy has no gender. So just because we might situate ourselves in a certain kind of way doesn't mean that our mind has not been affected by patriarchy. This is the practice of emptiness. It's seeing that themes or details created by the mind are just constructions like the construction of man or woman. They're conventions, as I was saying. They're conventional truth, and they can be really useful. For example, we can do studies, like the one I, sh I just shared with you, about this data, about the inequality between men and women. What cool conventions. They can really elicit, and they can really clarify some things. They can be helpful in all kinds of ways. It's the, can reach it, skillfully picking up the sack but also we need to know how to skillfully let go of the sack, to notice they arise and not get hooked by them. Skillfully dropping the sack. And of course we intellectually know this, but our hearts and minds still might not. And so I wanna point out what you do here is a way out. To think that right here at IMS, there's a way out from this societal dynamic to guard the sense doors, to practice sense restraint. And it's amazing, there's so many other ways we conceptualize bodies, how we paste on them these themes and details, and then we grasp onto them or we get hooked by them. Both by this body here, because I do it to this body here, not only the bodies out there. So there's a moment of seeing Contact happens. Oh, this body's old. That body's old. Oh, this body's young. That body's young. Oh, those are markings, right? Those, those are the signs, old, young. In our society, study after study, the bodies of those 
who are, are seen to be older are seen as less than. Eye contact, a, a, a moment of contact, seeing. Oh, this body's attractive. That body's not attractive. This body's compelling. This, this body's not compelling. And then from that, some bodies end up being more visible than other bodies. And it's kind of interesting how that happens, where there's, there's more bodies that seem to get more visibility, that we see them more because of the themes and details that have been there, because of how this mind has been shaped by society. And then we have this whole structuring of society of someone being more and someone being less, someone being visible and someone being invisible. It's like the same mind's happening here at IMS. And just seeing this moment in our experience, our momentary experience. Because if I were to grasp at that, those signs, if I were to get entangled in them, I actually might do something quite harmful. I would be just like those Brahmins who utilize a kind of societal system that everyone else hasn't consented to. And, and so many nimittas around bodies, the size of bodies, the color of bodies, the ability of, abilities of bodies, right here at IMS. The size of bodies. If, it's just a study that came out in the last year. If you're, if you're a child who's an obese child, your teacher is more likely to assume you're less intelligent than a child who's slim. Here it is, themes and details, getting hooked by it. The color of bodies. When iPods were auctioned on eBay, researchers randomly varied the skin color on the hand holding the iPod. A white hand holding the iPod received 21% more offers than a black hand. Or some of you know Airbnb, there was just, this happened, what was it, last year or two years ago? Which is so great, here's this, this huge operation Airbnb has, it's, it's computerized, they have tons of data. And what they started to realize is that, that, that people of color were much more likely to be refused a room than, than white people. And those of you who've used Airbnb, you know within the last year, there's this anti-discrimination disc, discrimination discclaimer that you have to sign now if you're one who's, who's a host or one using the room. And it's because of the data that they saw. And they said, wow, we really want to address this in some kind of way. This is, this is society. This is the mind. And it's not like I have to take it personally. There's nothing personal about this. I have to take responsibility for it, be responsive. But it's not something, it's not a personal dynamic that we're looking at. And we create a sense of self out of these movements or selves, one who's better than, less than. Another word for this is implicit bias or another phrase to, to mention it is unintentional bias. It's not like you're, you're intending to have these biases, but they arise in the mind. 
another description of this to really help bring this in this context. And this comes from a book that Sally mentioned, Deep Diversity. And the author, Shaquille Chowdhury, offers a, an example of this from his own life. So he goes and uh, he needs to get a new prescription from, uh, uh, for his glasses. And he goes to an optometrist to figure out, you know, uh, where can he get this new prescription? And the, uh, the person who's selling the glasses gives him this business card, this business card of an optometrist that he could go see to get his new prescription. And on, on the business card, there is this name, Abdeso Kianfar. And his mind feels this hesitation when it's confronted by, you could say, sense, a, a seeing contact, a moment of contact. When being confronted by a foreign name, and he says this image arises in the mind, which is a kind of theme or detail. It's a kind of papancha now of an older, unskilled foreign man in a musty, disorganized office. And what's interesting is Shaquille Chaudhry is someone who identifies as a South Asian Canadian. As he says, he's this guy with brown skin and a South Asian name. And he has spent much of his life studying and teaching about diversity and anti-racism. And here it is. It's a rising in the mind. The mind is conditioned by society. It's an unintentional bias that's there. And what's so cool about this story is that he noticed his mind do this. And then he continues to call the optometrist with this name. This is huge kind of freedom for the society that we live in. And this is actually, there was an article that just came out, I think the Atlantic Monthly last month to show that um, before I say this, I want to say, studying about these dynamics around racism or sexism or ableism is so important to know the dynamics, the history, the society that we live in, because when I understand my society, I understand this mind. But if I only study it, what they show is if somebody like goes to a diversity training and that's all they're doing is studying this, it doesn't make much change. What's needed is this noticing that we're exploring. This is what's needed. Not some kind of intellectual understanding, but actually doing the work, shooting the baskets on the basketball court again and again and again, just with this mundane stuff that's coming up moment after moment after moment. This non-dramatic practice is so powerful. Actually, Krishnamurti speaks to this. He, the, the trickiness of this, actually from the same quote, he says, since the habit of pattern thinking has already been established in you, even if you do revolt, it is within the pattern. It is like prisoners revolting in order to have better food, more conveniences, but it's always within the prison. When you seek God or try to find out what is right government, it is always within the pattern of society which says this is true and that is false, this is good and that is bad. That, this is the right leader and these are the saints. So your, your revolt, like the so-called revolution brought about by ambitious or very clever people, is always limited by the past, or you could say it's always limited by the conditioning of society. 
That is not revolt. That is not revolution. It is merely heightened activity, a mere valiant struggle within the pattern. Real revolt, true revolution, is to break away from the pattern and to inquire outside of it. Or you could say, in our terms, real revolt, real revolution, is to see the pattern, just that, moment after moment after moment. And really, we can explore this not just around human bodies, but around any object of seeing it, the activity of seeing or hearing or feeling and noticing what comes out of that, the constructions and just seeing it again and again and again. Every moment of experience allows us to see the structure of experience. That's where the freedom is. And I, I want to point out, I, I don't want to also put in there that this is always happening in the mind and this is only the way, this is the only way the, the mind relates to experience. But there can be other openings around objects, around sensations or sounds. And it has to do with this notion of uh, tatata, which is uh, usually translated as suchness or thusness, the experience of things being just as they are, just this. Where there's not getting hooked by the themes or details, where it's just just seeing a tree, just hearing a sound, not adding anything to it conceptually, not taking anything away, but not adding anything to it. So example of this visually, just this. Just the experience of seeing this right here. And what can happen is this can change because then I can say, just this. And then what our minds does is it looks at this first thing and it says, oh, it's smaller than this. This is a larger one, this is a smaller one. And this is a different way of, of approaching this. Oh, this is a small bell, here's a big bell, and here's a small one. And it's different just to see this in and of itself, just this, an arising in this interdependent world. Because it is, it's dependently originated. <laughs> just this. <laughs> so is this a big bell or a small bell now? <laughs> just this. And you can get tastes of that. Doing walking meditation, feeling the body moving, just this. I have to have some kind of narrative around it. Seeing a tree, just this. Hearing a bird, just this. Seeing a body, just this. Opening up to this quality of suchness. Just experience as it is. Actually, the... Last year, I was teaching a retreat in May. We were going over this. Actually, it was down at BCBS, and somebody had gone out for walking meditation. They said, oh, yeah, it was wonderful. I was just bathing in suchness. <laughs> what is it like to bathe in suchness? But also not to be deluded by suchness, because a lot of times what can happen with these unintentional biases or these, these themes or details is we can feel like, oh, I'm so beyond this. <laughs> 
we need to be honest with our experience of actually what's going on. That this mind is society and to see through that. And then there can be these openings to suchness, which allows for you know, really this quality of, sometimes it's talked about in Zen, this, this spiritual intimacy with the world that we find ourselves in. Okay, so that is sense restraint. Again, it's just these six sense bases, hearing, seeing, even if it's an emotion, just some kind of primary experience. And then notice how the mind starts to conceptualize around it. You don't need to stop it. And to see that it's just a concept. And it can happen so quickly, just as I see a body and it's like, oh man, woman, so subtle. Agreeable, disagreeable. It's around a sound, so subtle. To notice that. So we have some time if there's any questions about this practice, this practice of shooting the hoops, or comments. Please, that one on. Maybe sometimes we have to turn off the other one. There we go. Um, I wonder whether you could um, give any comments on, on doing this practice with uh, visual things with emptiness, because it seems a lot easier to do with sounds or thoughts with your eyes closed, because there is a sense of, you know, there's a, there's an emptiness there that something comes in and out of, but when you're looking, it's like, or at least my experience is that it's hard harder to get a sense of the emptiness around things because it's like the field is already feels full. Great. And so the way I'm talking about emptiness is it's it's actually seeing that things are constructed. I'm not trying to see that that the world is empty. Like it's not like I'm trying to like peer into the bowl and see the emptiness in the bowl. I'm just seeing see that this is actually a constructed thing. So let me give an example of this. Is You see the flowers. And it's just seen. And then what you'll notice is, is a lot of times when you're seeing the flowers, a lot of times the word flower will come up. Sometimes you'll even see the word come up into the mind. It will pop up in the, in, in the word. Or sometimes that word will just kind of pass through the mind. Or pink will come up. Some kind of word will come up. Or there's some notion of flower. And all I'm trying to notice is that, oh, there's the construction. There's the image, and there's the construction. And they're so intertwined. So I'm not trying to get rid of anything. Not like, it's not like I'm trying to see emptiness. I'm trying to see constructedness. And my experience of this flower is it's, design, it's, it's created around this thought flower and this image. And I can feel that in a way. And sometimes what starts to fade away a little bit is I can see the constructedness of flower when I see the color and the shape of what's up there. And when I really allow myself to feel the color and shape, it's like I get to see the ridiculousness of the word flower 
It has nothing to do with that experience. Oh, 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 it is empty of that. So that's how we can do it around that, or around uh, hearing a bird. So a lot of times what will happen, what I notice when when the sound of a bird comes up, is immediately there can be actually a faint image in the mind of a bird. And sometimes if it's a flying bird, if if it feels like there's motion to it, I'll get a faint image of a bird moving. And so then it's just noticing, oh, image, image, or bird, or if you're a birder, you might know what it is, a pigeon or whatever, I don't know my bird so well, (laughs) wren. (laughs) And noticing that, oh, oh, that is, wow, that's so interesting. That's just a word, that's just a construction. It has nothing to do with the direct experience of of the sound. And then sometimes with sound, I can hear the pitch of it, how it comes and goes, how it gets louder or softer. More of these, these threads of that experience. So I want to see these constructions. Does that help of a way to explore that? Uh, yeah, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I think I was, I was maybe referring to the exercises we were doing more yesterday where things are kind of coming in and out of awareness. It feels harder to do that with visual things than... Yes, sound, yeah. and this is a little bit different. It's just okay. it's just very simple seeing what's happening right now. I don't even have to really direct the mind to a particular aspect of experience, which we were doing yesterday. We're trying to direct it toward the, the knowing aspect. But now it's just kind of, today's uh, back to simple 101 Vipassana. Okay. Just more simple. Mm-hmm. God, do we... So you touched on this very briefly at the end of your talk about delusion. And I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit more because I find out of the three roots, greed, hatred, and delusion, delusion is like the hardest to see because like the nature of delusion is that, you know, (laughs) you're deluded. So so when you said, um, you know, but let us... You said, not, let us not be deluded. What is in, what's the feeling of delusion? Like, how do you know as a meditator, as a, when you practice, like, delusion is present? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so a, a few ways to, and you're right, it is the most subtle quality that is, that is, that is tricky to catch, whereas kind of grasping, we have the feeling of that. You know, which is in some ways for me a little more subtle than aversion. Like aversion's like the suffering's right there. Mm-hmm. But if there's something pleasant and I'm kind of grasping at it, I'm like, oh, I just like another piece of chocolate or mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great to go for more for a walk today? And so I'm lost in the pleasantness in some kind of way. And it's sometimes hard to catch the suffering. And then even more so with delusion. And sometimes the, the, the feeling sense of delusion, and it can have many different flavors, so I'm just going to name a few. But one is, it's like the mind's kind of slippery, like it can't really like land on an object and see it. So it's almost like, it's like the way sleepiness works. It's like I try to feel the breathing, but it kind of slips off, or I can't really notice it clearly, like there's a kind of fogginess to the mind, is, is sometimes the feeling sense of it. So either slippery, so it's like missing objects, it's missing experience, 
or experience is foggy, not seeing it clearly, like things are arising, but the mind isn't able to see it. So those are the things to track is the slipperiness and the fogginess. Or, um, uh, uh, oh boy, now, give me, a, there's, a, there's another word that's really great for this. Um, uh, subtle dullness. And if you can get to the point just to say, these are just some flavors. If you can get to a point where you can just say in the mind, oh, dullness, that's so great because it's so subtle. Or, oh, slipperiness. Or, oh, fogginess. Then we're seeing at least one kind of quality of, of delusion. Of that. Because delusion, in, in, in some ways, it's at the root of greed and hatred because it's, it's any quality of not seeing clearly. Yeah. Does that at least give a, a way to play with yes, it? Yeah. And I think just to tie it into what I was saying, around unintentional, unintentional bias, what makes it so tricky is that it has a delusive aspect to it. And some of it, I think, is we get to see the delusion of society in this sense, because it's the thing we don't want to talk about. And, and then it allows it to continue to be a delusion. Because we're given this, this thing of, of saying, well, I'm not sexist. I'm not ableist or racist. That's not me. Like that's, that's the narrative that I've been given. I would never be that way. And so it's a reinforcement of a kind of delusion. So I think sometimes teachings can help because, oh, this is greed, this is aversion. Oh, this is a tightening in the body. And that can also help as just more frames sometimes. Hi, Brian. Hey. I think I just want to express um, appreciation for um, bringing in so uh, specifically kind of race, gender, uh, and other forms of difference, particularly from um, what you've identified as your social location as a white male. Um, and I'm finding the um, kind of mind as society frame quite useful. Um, there's lots of times, particularly on retreat, when I notice um, like racist or sexist thoughts, mm -hmm. um, which I unfortunately you know don't see a lot of the time. Um, but when I do on retreat, uh, there's some ability to have some kind of compassion and some like, oh yeah, there's that thought, and I don't have to believe it mm -hmm. um, and see it as a manifestation of this larger system. So I just kind of appreciate that frame and you bringing that forward. Mm, thanks. Thanks for your comment. Yeah. And I, I do feel that I think this is the power of what the, the Buddha was speaking to such a social context that he was in. And that's what I find so striking about when I read a lot of these discourses is there's this commentary in the background that's going on. So for me, I imagine when I imagine the Buddha living this time, he'd be so down for all this. <laughs> this is what it's about. Maybe one more here. Yeah, question about um, one part of the teachings today. So, talking about um, like the emptiness of uh, 
using the example of the flower, right? This concept of flower is uh, is is empty. Um, that sounds to me like, you know, in uh, in the context of the aggregates, the perception aggregate being about categorization. Mm-hmm. So is that? And, and I, my understanding of the aggregates of these five sort of kinds of things that uh, existence is made up out of. So is is perception emptiness? Exactly. A lot of this practice is we are seeing the empty na- nature of perception around this, how we make perceptions to be more real than they actually are. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, I mean, all of them are... are are empty and there's there's a way of kind of digging into that but there's can be something so powerful about this realm of perception to notice that 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 is um constructed on a more subtle level i really don't want to get into this but all of it even vedna is constructed you know that 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 experience is is um is pleasant unpleasant or neutral is is a construction or as you know, Susie gave us these great examples, and so did a guy, of, of how seeing is a constructed experience. If I was a bee, things would look really different right now. So even that activity is, so construction goes down to a really subtle level. The reason I like perception and honing in on that, because it's so connected with suffering and the end of suffering. And it's important to remember that emptiness is not just some kind of philosophical exercise. I got to make sure it's tied to my, the suffering and the end of suffering. And so for me, that's 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 the the kanda that that has a, a tremendous amount of practicality to it. Yeah. Okay. So um, j- just a quick reminder. Again, keeping the practice really simple. It's just noticing. Remember, you're going to miss a lot of shots during the day, especially if you play basketball like I do. <laughs> that's just that's just the game. The hoop is small. Be okay with that. These noticing these secondary characteristics. It could be around a sensation or a sound. It can be just paying attention to the breath. You can notice this stuff. And don't miss these moments of suchness, what I'm calling the spiritual intimacy. A mind that's not hooked by greed, grasping this aversion or delusion. It's just there, those moments that happen. Okay, thank you.